Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Reformed Podmatics. My name is Pastor Mark. And I am Pastor Zach. And we thank you for joining us here on Reformed Podmatics. We are now on episode 29 of this adventure, and (laughs) uh, many people have jumped on board along the way, and we're so thankful to God that you uh, would give your precious time to listen to some of our thoughts on the scriptures and uh, what is happening in our world and so thank you so much. Uh, it's been so great to hear from people who have been blessed by the podcast, and we're glad that it seems to be going well um, as we hear <laughs> from people. Uh, hopefully that can continue into the future. Yeah, guys, we hope it continues to be a blessing for, for all of you who are listening. Yeah, so today we are getting into this topic of biblical authority, and that's something that Christians know they should have. They should give the Bible authority in their lives. And yet it seems to Pastor Zach and I that at times something gets lost along the way, that um, yeah. that as we enter into church or as we open our Bibles around the table or in our devotional time, we know that we should be giving the Bible authority over our life, over our theology, over our um, activity, our passions, our desires. But something happens there that Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't always make that manifest um, in the way that it should in our lives. And so we're going to try to get to the bottom of how this looks in the life of a Reformed Christian and uh, also try to give a few examples of where this is really not happening in certain types of churches or in the lives of certain Christians where somebody would say, I know the Bible has authority, I know the Bible matters, but... um, you look at their life and it just doesn't seem to match up at all with the uh, the teaching of Scripture. Yeah, in many ways this is an episode that's connected to the previous episode we've just mm-hmm. done last week yeah. on repentance. Uh, if the Bible has no authority, repentance is not necessary. Sure. If the Bible does not speak a true and authoritative word over your life, why should you ever change your course of life? Uh, w- one thing that's really important that needs to be said about authority is that it's the way in which God mediates his lordship over our lives. If God is Lord of all, if he's Lord of the cosmos and Lord over our lives, and we recognize his authority, we must recognize his word as his way of, uh, of working out that authority in mm-hmm. our lives. And so the authority of scripture is an all-important doctrine for how it, for for when it comes to how we live as Christians in our world and how we engage with others, how we form our habits and our practices, uh, our disciplines, how we worship, mm. how we love and serve our neighbors, mm. and so on. Uh, so we have to have this conversation to talk about what it means even to be a faithful Christian at all. Yeah, and maybe before we jump into the theology and Um, some of the analysis here, I think we should start with thanksgiving that we have the written word of God and we have it in our own language 
um, that we have the standard. I mean, imagine living life, which is what many people are doing today, with mm. no standard. <laughs> yeah. um, no standard except for probably the, the law, the civic law, uh, that would prevent them from doing what is bad yeah. in certain cases. But then um, in many cases that they would be doing things that are not illegal, but are, mm-hmm. are very morally destructive to their own selves and to the people around them. And so we have, thankfully, the perfect written word of God. Yeah, And um, and that's why on Sunday mornings, after yeah. we read, we it's our practice here at Almond Valley to say, thanks, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Yeah, And that is not just a little habit that we do, but it is meant to inculcate in everyone, mm-hmm. the pastor and the congregation, in a, a deep and true appreciation for God's word. Yeah, and um, I, I like that song, Ancient Words, because... Um, mm-hmm. I, it does something that I don't think I've ever heard in another song where it praises God for preserving his word through generations. Um, that's really not a theme that you hear uh, sung about very much, much less even talked about. And so yeah. um, I love that we have God's word. If you want to be stirred up with um, emotion and thankfulness to God, go to YouTube after this and type in people receiving Bible translations in their own language for the first time. I don't know if that is the exact title of um, any video, but there are many videos of Chinese Christians who are receiving their first personal copy of the Word of God, and uh, they're weeping, they're yelling, they're absolutely, like, they're holding it to their chest. Those are incredible videos. Like, it's the the best thing they've ever gotten in their life. And um, there's another amazing video of the Kimyal people who I believe live in Indonesia receiving the Bible in their language for the first time. I think it's just the New Testament, but uh, again, yelling, dancing, crying, weeping with joy that they would have God's word in their language. Perhaps they have an understanding of Scripture's place in our lives that we have forgotten (laughs) through familiarity with it. Yeah, and to get to the topic of giving the Bible authority, I mean, you see in those people just... Yeah. such a hunger to do what God says and to live God's way, to receive the grace that he gives us through Christ. And um, it's life to them, uh, the words of eternal life. And we could even start with the Bible, verse Psalm 119, 4 and 5, which describes really the whole episode here where um, the psalmist is saying, God, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. So um, God gives us his word, which is meant to be believed, which is meant to be obeyed. Um, Again, as James says as well, faith without works is dead. And so if we just believe these things, but the Bible doesn't have practical authority over how we act and live, then we're missing something in the Christian life. So we're going to hopefully get to the bottom of how that happens and, um, Hmm. and how Reformed theologians have addressed some of the issues um, that spring up on occasion in the life of individual Christians and churches and even denominations. So what is one way, um, Zach, that you see this principle of biblical authority being threatened in our culture today? Perhaps the main one, and I don't. I hope mm-hmm. this won't take over the whole conversation, but the one that comes to mind for me is the 
denial, even in Protestant circles, which is a great irony uh, looking at church history, it's a denial of the clarity or perspicuity of Scripture. Um, it's a desire to just essentially say Scripture fails to be clear enough for, for us to understand it properly. And so what this devolves into is a sort of dog-eat-dog approach to interpretation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody's interpretation is just that. It's their interpretation. It's their opinion. And so what this does, as you erode or pick away at the clarity of Scripture, you, you ruin. It has ruinous effects, disastrous effects on the authority of Scripture. And so I, I see quite often uh, the, the case made against Scripture from those who w- would like to quibble, particularly with passages that would otherwise seem clear. They'll want to deny the clarity in order to uh, functionally throw off the chains, they would sort of say, of its authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I see this quite a bit. And... I think it's one of the most harmful uh, ways that that the authority of Scripture is attacked in our present day. Uh, the, the ironic thing here is that this position is very similar to the position of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, at least hmm. in its in the past thousand years of its hmm. teaching. Uh, one of the interesting things that you could you could look to is the desire of the Roman Catholic Church ever since we could say the medieval period to deny reading the reading of Scripture by the laity, mm-hmm. uh, and so Bibles would be often chained um, and, and kept in the churches only for uh, the trained clergy to read and to interpret. This is why the Latin Vulgate stayed the Latin Vulgate for so long, because they did not want it to go out. And so Rome believed that the Bible was pretty unclear, and so it could be interpreted in so many different ways that they had to keep it protected from being interpreted wrongly. And so this is sort of why they have developed the the magisterium, which is the interpretive body that has final authority in how the Bible is to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting to me is that this position of the Roman Catholic Church is quite similar to the position of liberal Protestantism uh, in the past several hundred years. And what they're both doing is saying the Bible is not clear. Hmm. And therefore, there's a problem here that has to be resolved somehow. Yeah. And for the Catholic Church, they, at least to their credit, in a consistent way say, well, there's, that's why the Holy Spirit has given us the church and particularly the magisterium and the Pope to help us interpret scripture, which is otherwise unclear in a way that is clear. But the liberal Protestant position has a difficulty in saying anything is authoritative because it all devolves. Well, they would say general revelation then would take over where special revelation is insufficient. Yeah. What what do you mean by that? I would love to hear you flesh that out a little bit. So, both sides, so the, the Catholic view needs to compensate for the lack of clarity in Scripture by saying the church will tell you clearly mm-hmm. what to do, what to believe, so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so they answer the problem in, in that manner. Mm-hmm. And so the, today's liberal Protestant, and I would even say, yeah, the historic uh, liberalism um, kind of springing out of Germany and the 
18th mm-hmm. century into the modern era, really ramped up in the 20th century, yeah. um, would elevate things like philosophy, um, mm-hmm. natural philosophy. Sciences. Uh, the sciences, especially. And, and that's you see that a lot today, where um, one sentence will be a diminishment of the clarity of Scripture on something like homosexuality, and then the next sentence will be, and we know it's good because... Um, we see things, you know, in our, our world today, we sort of, we, we have our eyes open to what science is telling us about these matters. Um, and, and what it ends up doing is elevating general revelation. I would say, honestly, probably above special revelation in those cases. Yeah. So you're reading, you're reading scripture through the lens of natural revelation and you're not reading natural revelation through the lens of scripture yeah so you're reversing the what we would say is the orthodox or historic christian way of of doing things Uh, absolutely i I think that that's actually very insightful uh, that we read scripture sort of the reverse of how we should read it Mm. what often ends up happening though that i've also noticed is that liberal protestants that that read scripture often tend to obfuscate passages of scripture that have otherwise been considered in the in the uh, history of the church to be quite clear. Yeah. Oh, many, yeah. And they will say that certain passages of scripture are undeniably clear. Uh <laughs> and and so this often one of the biggest ones maybe is the you know the the golden rule of loving your neighbor as yourself. Mhm. Nobody really denies that Jesus said that. It's interesting that uh, in the 20th century, what's the name of the group? The uh, the Jesus, uh, not the Jesus movement. That, that's oh, the Jesus seminar. The Jesus seminar. Yeah, yes, thank you. They they've sort of gone through and said that these are the things that Jesus has really said, and these are the things that Jesus has not really said, <laughs> and they sort of have the the Q theory, and that's where the Gospel of Mark comes from, and right. so on, and. And so there, there's a way of going through the Gospels and saying, this is actually real Jesus, and this is fake Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's interesting that those real Jesus things are all the, the nice sayings of Jesus. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, that, that, that sort of stuff is not denied. So that's very clear, and nobody denies what that means. Mm. Uh, For now. For now, <laughs> although there is a sort of reworking of that, I guess, yeah. a little bit. But yeah. it's interesting that that sort of certainty is not applied to Paul, for example. Paul often hmm. in this conversation gets pitted against the words of Christ. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of scholarship that would debate or would argue that Paul and Christ were, are, were saying very, very different things. And their approach to the gospel, their approach to the Christian life is very, very different as well. And so we can take what Jesus says with absolute certainty, but we can't really take what Paul or some of the other apostles say with absolute certainty. And look, even Peter admits that Paul's writings are hard to understand, (laughs) so we shouldn't just take what Paul has to say at face value. Hmm. Uh, But the problem with that is that Christ has given the office of apostle. The apostle are those who are ordained by him to to take his message mm-hmm. to the world and to preach authoritatively. 
In the early church, the apostles' words were the very words of Christ, whether they were speaking with their mouths or whether they were speaking with their pens. And so we should read Paul with just the same amount of authority of Christ because Christ has given him authority to mm-hmm. write and to teach. And you may wonder, well, Paul, you know, Paul is Paul is the Johnny-come-lately of the apostles. He's, he's the one that he didn't actually know Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that is, of course, Christ met him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And then... But he also goes time, and he too. he meets with the other apostles and is given what they what he calls the right hand of fellowship. We can mm. see that in Galatians 1. And so the, the other apostles gave him their full recognition that what he was saying was true and that he would truly was an apostle and not just somebody who was claiming apostleship, uh, which could have very likely been mm. a, a possible thing that people were doing. Sure. Well, and... Um it's it's so important to recognize these things because everyone is going to eventually appeal to an ultimate source of truth or certainty, mm-hmm. and they're going to build their life on that source. For so, for example, science. A lot of people will say, "I believe in science," and they would say, "I'm also a Christian, but my belief in science is going to dictate the things that I take or leave from the Bible." Mm-hmm. Um, so. Obviously, then, the biblical authority is a lower authority than scientific authority. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones addresses this at one point. He was, of course, a man of science. He was a great doctor, one of the top doctors in all of England, medical doctors, Hmm. before he was a minister. And he notes how fickle science is. And, again, not an anti-intellectual who is saying this, a medical doctor, one of the finest in all of England at the time, hmm. and uh, he one example he gives is he he notes that it used to be believed that the thyroid gland was a vestigial organ. It's it's like n- unnecessary, <laughs> like yeah. the appendix. Yeah, it, it, people doctors used to remove that, and it was just like uh, thought to be solving a problem. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know now it's very important that your thyroid gland functions correctly. So hmm. um, that. So often there is the assumption that science is settled and Mm -hmm. then people will assume that and go to the scriptures and say, therefore, the scripture should be reinterpreted or even something like cultural norms are settled. So if somebody has cultural norms as their highest authority, um, they're going to have a problem with Ephesians 5's description of marriage. (laughs) So I've even heard people say that this is a cultural um, document, the book of Ephesians, and um, it should be understood that their culture was that way and our culture isn't that way anymore, so we don't have to have this uh, mutual submission or or women obey your husbands, which is pleasing to the Lord, so forth and so on, Um, because our culture now has figured out that that's not good. Yeah. And and so that what that is end up saying is our culture has a greater authority than the words of scripture. Yeah, that's a very very common way of reading scripture too when it comes to culture. Yeah. That's a lot like a lot of passages in scripture are read through that lens of well this is just a a cultural document that comes from a particular mm-hmm. time and we no longer need to need to listen to it or need to grant it authority. So 
And we have to recognize it is a cultural document. Sure. And oh, yeah. um, the culture that it was written in, it was not perfect. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it, it, to use Ephesians 5 as another example, that was actually an extremely countercultural statement that Paul was making about marriage in the first century. Yeah. And so people it was would, not just a unique or not, not just a common way no, of, of uh, talking about family for husbands to think of your wives in that way that paul was writing about was Pretty absolutely original i I've, i i think i've read before that that was one mm-hmm. of the earliest examples of of husbands basically being called to to lay down your life for your own wife yeah um and and so <laughs> the accusation of that just being a cultural document, uh, just going with the flow of its culture, is not only not true, but it's actually just a convenient excuse to dismiss a lot of the yeah. things that Paul is saying. So um, I don't know if that's everyone's motive for saying that Paul was just culturally motivated, but I do think that that is a way of diminishing biblical authority, certainly, is to put culture over um, the uh, the words as they should be plainly understood. Yeah, so what, what would be some other ways then that some beliefs that, that threaten the Bible's authority? Yeah, another, another one that I hear from ministers, academics, scholars, is to approach the Bible as wisdom literature. So mm-hmm. it um, really kind of puts the Bible on the same level as Plato's Cave or Aesop's Fables, and there <laughs> are these stories. This is, again particularly common in the secular world for people who want to value the things the Bible says, like somebody like Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And, um, and I, I like a lot of the things that Jordan Peterson has to say, but that's basically mm-hmm. his way around giving the Bible ultimate authority in his life is to say it is a amazingly wise, uh, a, amazing book full of wisdom. Um, but uh, Peterson has also said he struggles with, belief in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He Mm -hmm. said that, I believe, at Liberty University. So um, Mm -hmm. that's that's sort of the way around giving all of the Bible authority. Um, I'll often remind people, maybe in our church, if they're youth or if I'm just talking with somebody um, about this topic, I would say the Bible isn't just wisdom literature. And neither is it just a manual that tells you all the yeah. uh, sort of instructions for how to live your life. It's not just a law book either. <laughs> um, the Bible is a truly unique book in that it has laws in it mm-hmm. that are meant to be understood and followed and obeyed. So what you mean by the Bible is not wisdom literature is essentially it is not a take it or leave it text. Yeah. Where some of the parts you may think, oh, that's wise, you know, I'll add that to my repertoire and sort of, you know, I'll follow that bit of it. But the other part, well, it's just wisdom. It's just guidance. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. laws or commands. It's just sort of best practices. And so I can leave that part of it behind. Yeah. And so... How how does this differentiate then? You may be wondering from actual wisdom literature in the mm-hmm, Bible, mm-hmm. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and so on. Well, even the wisdom literature of the Bible is leans a little bit more towards law. I would say oh, yeah. um, something yeah. like the Psalms, obviously yeah. the Proverbs. They're not um, they're not wisdom literature, just sort of in the broad sense of. Um, 
wow, it takes a lot of interpretation to apply these to different situations. And mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty straightforward r- wisdom literature, I would say. Um, and, and maybe my term of wisdom literature is, is more meant to encapsulate that ethos you just mentioned of take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, these things didn't really happen. That's m- m- kind of a way of skirting around the issue of the historicity of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, stories like Jonah, um, like Jesus feeding 5,000 mm-hmm. people on a hillside, Jesus walking on water, r- being raised from the dead, um, miracles in the early church, things like Pentecost, which are very supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks particularly secular people, but also liberal Protestants, want to approach that and say, um, given that this thing is not observable today, uh, we should interpret that it means that um, God is powerful, like Pentecost, for example. God is so powerful that he brings people together in all kinds of creative ways. Yeah, diversity. And and that would be, yeah, right, diversity would be a big one for Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that would be sort of the wisdom literature take on the event of Pentecost. And yeah, there's a thread of truth to that. Sure. Um, Pentecost does get diversity. (laughs) Right. And not only that, but a miracle story does give us wisdom for how we Mm -hmm. should live our lives today and how God works today. But we also must believe that what is presented to us in the Bible as historical fact is meant to be believed as historical fact. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think when I think of of how wisdom literature in the Bible is different from this idea of just wisdom literature, take it or leave it. It's a, just looking at the Proverbs, for example, the fundamental premise of the Proverbs is that God's wisdom is available to him who humbles himself and seeks the Lord uh, in the Lord's ordained ways. And so mm. it's not a take it or leave it approach to God's wisdom. It's a you must get wisdom. You will yeah. die if you don't have wisdom. Yeah. That's Proverbs 4. That's the beckoning call of the father to the son there. Uh, you don't don't be an idiot. Get wisdom. You absolutely need wisdom. And the way to get wisdom is by submitting to the Lord's wisdom, not having a, ah, this is a good bit of wisdom. This is a bad bit, bit of wisdom. That's foolishness, according mm-hmm. to the Proverbs, mm-hmm. to think that you know better than the Lord. The Proverbs admonishes us to take a lowly stance when we when we come when it comes to trying to discern and to evaluate and to ultimately obey the wisdom of the Lord uh, it's it's saying you must take take his lordship into account and not come presuming that you can think or know better than the Lord yeah absolutely and another I mean an example that I've even heard recently is a minister rejecting the historicity of Jonah of that story, hmm. saying he interprets it as um, wisdom literature, as you a know. fable. Of yeah, sorts. because uh, you know he's in the fish and it brings him to the land, and mm-hmm. then he sort of learns his lesson a little bit, and he ends up going to Nineveh. And um, I, I was, I was a little bit taken aback by that, um, but hmm. um, I wondered how could I address that particular thing and i've heard kevin DeYoung, uh, a good pastor in the pca address that exact um sort of gripe about or, or that that exact position by saying jesus understood the story of jonah as a historical truth so much so that mm-hmm. he said that his generation would have the sign of jonah given to it which is 
that, of course, Jonah was in the fish for three days and was spat upon the land. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and then rose from the dead. And so hmm. um, if Jesus understood it to be a historical reality, then and, we should too. And, and we should as well. Hmm. Um, certainly there are, yeah, there are wisdom stories in the Bible. Of course, it's not necessary that we believe that the parables actually happened. There was actually a son who um, asked for his father's inheritance and then you know left. It's not necessary that we would believe that that actually happened. However, what is presented to us as a historical reality, particularly the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, must be believed to have really happened. So um, another option for... Yeah. People who want to uh, kind of reject the Bible, the overall scope of the Bible's authority is what uh, a good pastor named Paul Tripp calls receiving the Bible as an encyclopedia. And um, this is where people go to the Bible and they find information. It's about the answer book. It's almost the op. It's similar to wisdom literature, but almost the opposite in a way where the Bible will just tell me how to decide which car to buy or um, decide which job I should do. And hopefully there's going to be some verse in there that will just solve my problem for me. Um, hmm. Kind of just like how people use an encyclopedia. If you need to know about cheetahs, you would find the yeah. uh, World Book Encyclopedia Section C and then just go and learn about cheetahs. And, and that's it. You don't really care what the next article is after cheetahs. Yeah. Um, you just... You got what your little nugget out, and and that's all that really matters. And I would say that's a way of diminishing the overall authority of the Bible. That we should, for example, read straight through books of the Bible, hmm. so that we would have God's revelation on His terms and not just always on ours. Yeah, that helps us to see the breadth of the authority of Scripture. Yeah, it's not just that single passages taken out of scripture and abstracted from their context have authority, which they do, but they have an authority. It's an, it's a web of authority that all of scripture has. Uh, and so we can't just take one, one passage out and pit it against the rest of, of scripture. We have to read all of scripture together and that's how its authority is given to us. Uh, it's not just a canon within a canon, of, of our favorite Bible verses, like we've looked at a few weeks ago with our favorite Bible verses. We can't pit those favorite texts or even books of the Bible against others and say, this is really the the most uh, important part. While that maybe I need to nuance that a little bit to say that there are, I think, books of the Bible that have a special prominence, mm-hmm. but you cannot read them without all of scripture sure so the reformers were not only arguing for what we call sola scriptura uh, which has at its core the authority of scripture but they were also arguing for tota scriptura they were arguing for all of it Mm. all of it needs to be read and needs to be seen as being authoritative Uh, and so when we read it as an encyclopedia we're almost uh, determining what we think is important and then getting getting the important answers from Scripture, but no, we're not letting Scripture set the boundaries for what what needs to be known and what mm-hmm. is what is true and what is uh, what God wants to communicate to us. Uh, if if somebody wrote me a letter that was we'll say fifty pages long, 
and I just went through and just scanned for the word that I was interested in hearing them talk about. That would be a bad way of reading that letter. <laughs> um, the better way to read the letter would be to read all of it yeah. and to take it all into account. Well, and a, a good application of this would be um, the current conversation around human sexuality often does fall into yeah. this trap of seeing the Bible as encyclopedia. And it's like, if we, those who are in favor of um, same-sex unions and marriage and activity and so forth, kind of approach it from what I've perceived by, if we can explain these six verses, yeah, uh, we if we can get rid of <laughs> the, the the authority or, or bring in, call into question these six verses, yeah. um, or six texts of Scripture, then... We, we remove those parts of the encyclopedia. Yep. And um, then, then we got it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would want to respond and say, just reading the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, one <laughs> cannot escape the holiness of God, the glory of God, the, of course, God's grace, but also the beauty of his law and how um, we must submit ourselves absolutely to the law of God, and that is the way to mm-hmm. live in this world. And so, when you read the whole scope of it, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna get that sense, and then you're going to say, "And, and I'll do, I'll, I'll live in whatever way He calls me to." This gets back to that repentance episode. That's what we said. The ethos of repentance is is to know God, to know you are sinful, and to say, "I." must repent if I'm going to, to mm-hmm. be near God in, in fellowship with God, like what it says in First John. Um, and so the encyclopedia approach um, often mm-hmm. doesn't just look for the text that they like, but it's, it makes it easier to remove certain parts of the encyclopedia that one would say are no longer um, necessary or helpful or can be kind of explained away. Yeah, this is pretty much the approach of Matthew Vines and his book, God and the Gay Christian, where he explicitly says in the introduction that I have a very, very high view of Scripture, like conservative evangelicals, but unlike conservative evangelicals, when I read these six passages, I don't come to the same conclusions that they do regarding homosexuality and its acceptability in the church. And so for him, homosexuality only comes down to those six passages and so the the book is framed on those six passages mm-hmm. and going through each one one by one to make arguments against how those clearly speak to the uh, modern format of homosexual relationships mm-hmm. that is monogamous lifelong same-sex relationships which he's arguing for in the book that should be accepted and so one of the problems with that is that the scripture doesn't just speak about homosexuality <laughs> in those six passages sure. where the word or the idea of a man being with another man comes up explicitly. One good example of this could be uh, Ephesians 5. Yeah. <laughs> Genesis where, 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, the the, the times in the Gospels where, where Jesus is speaking about marriage and seems to just assume that marriage is a man and a woman and revelation the christ and his bride that's a huge one yeah so when we see marriage depicted in scripture even in the new testament by jesus himself and 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 by the apostles 
what we see is that there is a complementarity in the nature of the relationship between a male and a female. And that is nowhere questioned. That is always assumed to be the case. And so the argument, however, from Vines and others with him is that the Bible nowhere talks of or really knows of homosexuality in its modern sense. Mm -hmm. What it's getting at is more of what we would consider pederasty um, and pedophilia and exploitation and male adult male and adult child or adult child male child uh, relationships and yeah exploitation and so on and so of course those are things that the bible is aware of and it speaks against those but it doesn't necessarily speak against anywhere monogamous same-sex marriage and so the redefinition of marriage that comes in is marriage is merely the consensual lifelong relationship between two adults Uh, and so it redefines marriage whereas the rest of the scriptures even when it's not speaking about homosexuality per se very clearly assumes a definition of marriage that is male and female yeah and this we could maybe combine the bible as encyclopedia with the bible isn't very clear um approach and (laughs) say that some people view the bible as an encyclopedia with some old passages that have been kind of disproven or, or through a lack of clarity can be basically tossed out. I yeah. once heard a minister in the RCA um, talking about Leviticus, and she was asked about Leviticus, and she just scoffed, oh, Leviticus, oh, poor Leviticus, you over there with your all your laws, and it's so it's too bad that you're just so angry, Leviticus. And and I was thinking, well, this is this is somebody who does not value biblical authority, uh, sees herself as above it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that she was saying that was because she doesn't want to take the time to learn about the sacrificial system and the um, under the applications that Leviticus has to Christ, which are on every page and mm-hmm. are actually very profound and amazing and helpful, and it's great that we have leviticus um she doesn't care she would just view leviticus as that encyclop that outdated encyclopedia entry that should probably be removed and so the sin there of course is not seeing yourself under the the lordship of christ and seeing that you can almost sort of scoff at what god has stated and that is a problem so a lot of what this comes down to is our stance Mm. towards God's, not just the scripture's authority, but towards God's authority himself. When God speaks, we want to listen. That's what Jesus says we should do, right? John John chapter 10, he says, my sheep know me and they hear my voice and they follow me. Mm. Okay, (laughs) then that should be, that should explain all of our approach to the Christian life. God speaks we listen. Now, that can be not not always as clear as we would like it to be in the sense that we, we are not following all of the ceremonial laws of Leviticus. And that's why she's sort of yeah. uh, scoffing at, at Leviticus is because the ceremonial law is not something that Christians are under any obligation to follow any longer. 
but let's figure out why it's been fulfilled in Christ and delight in right. not just the work of Christ, but the word of God, which points us to the holiness of God often through Leviticus and the yeah. Christ's priestly role and so forth. So, um, yeah. So that, Leviticus is still yeah. authoritative and it's still been fulfilled by Christ. Yeah. So we, it's not that it has been done away with. We still want to read Leviticus. It's that Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law. Yeah, and um, not to get maybe too far into just one application of this, because there are other applications of not seeing the Bible or or, estab- or valuing its authority very highly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the um, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage debate, one thing that I've often been alarmed by, and which I don't ever... I don't believe it's ever been addressed is than anyone that I've heard or any book that I've read is um, proponents of the open and affirming position will often say those passages that deal with homosexuality in Mm -hmm. the scripture are not clear. They're not as clear as they would seem on face value. They have, Mm -hmm. you have to research them and understand all the cultural different things behind them. And so, they're kind of doing away with, or, or not doing away with, but they're they're saying that those those passages deal with other things, right? And um, those same people would say it is so core to my identity that I would be gay, be known as gay, that I would um, mm-hmm. have my sexuality affirmed because it's such an important part of my identity. Um, and I would suggest that our sexuality is. A very very important part of our identity so they're sort of onto something there I would say mm-hmm. that um, one's sexual who one is attracted to matters a lot in your life and your thinking um, mm-hmm. and what they're saying then is the Bible is a book that says nothing about this very important part of my identity and to which I say the Bible does say something about your identity not just generally of having an identity in Christ as Mm -hmm. a child of God a citizen of the kingdom of God and so forth but the Bible says um, very clear teaching about our sexual identities and um, some of the issues that come up in one's sexual life right heterosexual homosexual and so forth so I'm always concerned when the knee-jerk reaction to um, these verses from the Bible is to say, oh, the Bible isn't so clear about that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what we're saying Mm -hmm. is the Bible isn't clear about this really, really important thing. So God, you know, he kind of just messed up on that. And um, he actually says almost nothing about this thing that people say is so core to their identity. Yeah, and what's interesting to me from, from that which it's true. You could see that knee jerk reaction against the Bible saying something that could be, could possibly be read as authoritative in this realm of my life. It's sort of based on fear because if the Bible does say something about this realm, well, my life is going to have to change very drastically. So I'm going to work to make sure to see to it that the Bible isn't speaking clear on this because if it's not, then I can continue on as Mm -hmm. I've been living. Mm -hmm. And what's, it's often said to conservatives like me that your your reading of the Bible is very much based on fear 
and you're very fearful of, of the culture mm-hmm. and you're fearful that you're losing the culture change and you're fearful of those things. Yeah. But you could just as easily flip that around and say, I think many people read the Bible based on fear. And so there's a fear of God speaking authoritatively to you. Uh, and so this, you could see here in this part of the conversation how connected authority is to repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we often don't want to repent. We often think that our way is the right way. And so we don't want to understand God as saying something that could cause us to have to reevaluate everything we've come to know about ourselves and come to think. So we, we sort of want to push away at what God is saying. And so that that's often very clearly perceived in, in arguments that, that want to do away with these passages on homosexuality. It's You could see that there's a sort of, they, they clearly recognize that if the, these passages are interpreted in the traditional way Mm -hmm. that it's going to require deep repentance and so and that repentance to go further is the best thing that you could do exactly yeah exactly right because god says so so turning and following the the way of god is what we should desire to do Mm -hmm. and so that's something that I often don't see either here when it comes to these arguments is a sort of willingness to possibly be wrong. Mm. Um, I mean, you could maybe throw that around on traditional yeah, on conservative side too. Cons- yeah. Sure. And say we're unwilling to be wrong, but I think it could go both ways. That could be sliced mm-hmm. right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and the key really is to <laughs> is to say oh i'm going to open myself to whatever god's word says exactly and not just because um somebody just told me to but because i really believe that what god says is important is important and what god says about my sexuality is what i need to know about my sexuality and how i need to live and exercise my um uh, or, or, or see how I need to see my own identity, um, which is, of course, first in Christ and uh, and as an obedient child of God. Um, so I, I just hope that what people gather from the scriptures is that what the Bible talks about is what you need to know. And if there's some core part of our identity that we're... we're we're starting to believe that the Bible doesn't really talk about, it's probably a problem with us and not a problem with the scriptures. Um, Cornelius Van Til had a, has a quote about this where he says, um, the Bible is authoritative in everything that it covers, and it covers everything. Hmm. And so by that, of course, he didn't mean that the Bible covers, you know, um, whether there should be bicycle lanes on roads or not. Um, <laughs> but the Bible... Everything that is important, the Bible addresses. Hmm. Everything that is ultimately important. And so the Bible is authoritative in everything that it covers, and it covers everything. Um, and I, I do think that that is true. It and, covers every realm of our of our existence as yeah. well as humans, our sexuality included. And so, yeah, to say that it doesn't is almost to say that God leaves a lacuna or a gap mm-hmm. in his, in his uh, message to to, to humankind and his speaking and he forgets essentially a part of 
of human existence, or he fails to anticipate mm. a part of human existence that 2,000 years after the close of the canon would come into into being. Uh, so that's where something like open theism makes a lot of space for reinterpretation or, or even saying yeah. that um, the scriptures are, are this sort of revelation for a dispensation. Right. And um, the open theist says, now we need general revelation to sort of fill out our understanding of things that just weren't covered but are, are very important right now that we need to know about. <laughs> so, um, of yeah. course, we don't subscribe to that. But uh, that is one answer, I suppose, to the uh, progressive person's um, lack or yeah. what they have to do, where they have to go for truth once biblical authority itself is eroded. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe one more issue that could arise sure. in giving the Bible itself authority is what I would call denominationalism. This is the idea that um, what my denomination teaches is just what I should believe, and um, I should uh, maybe in the back of my mind knowingly avoid some parts of Scripture that challenge the teaching of my local church, um, my pastor, or my denomination. Um, so a lot of times you would find people believing, kind of just outsourcing that thought process to the pastor, the priest, the, um, the scholar and saying, well, what, yeah, the tradition, whatever they say is kind of good for me. And I don't really have to dig into the scriptures about, um, baptism or complementary, uh, male, female relationships or sexuality or, um, how a church should function and what the governing structure should be. I'm just going to go with what my denomination says, and I don't really have to study the Bible on that. Yeah, th- this is actually a, a conversation that I've been having with myself for, for the past several years about denominationalism. On the one hand, it's good to have a denomination that has smarter people than yourself that can help <laughs> you think through things, uh, and you don't I don't, I don't think it's possible for every Christian to know everything about everything. Mm-hmm. Even the best theologians have have blind spots or weaknesses, areas of, of theology that they're not as knowledgeable about. And so it's good to have a, a, a denomination that helps you, that guides you into reading Scripture well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is true that denominations are not going to have all of the truth we're not going to all be perfectly Catholic with a lowercase c. Uh, and so, yeah, we have to, this is sort of the not principle. Not even the Roman Catholics are Catholic. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Man, that's that's the Protestant Reformation 101 right there. The Roman Catholic Church is exactly that. They're the Roman Catholic Church. They are not the Catholic Church. Hmm. Uh, and I've gotten into lots of fights saying those words before. <laughs> And maybe I'll get myself into more. And now that I've said that, but live. by that we mean we need each other, and we need re- refining from Pentecostals and right uh, Methodists and Lutherans, and we need yeah. one another. Um, so not not because, again, not because God's word is unclear, but because yeah. uh, He has given us the, His body, the body of Christ, mm-hmm. so that we can refine one another in understanding it. Um, we. Amen. Holding to the perspicuity of Scripture this is the idea that we can understand all that we need to know from the Bible um, for life and godliness, for salvation. Any person um, uh, with a, some the cognitive ability to understand very basic things mm-hmm. could understand the gospel, could understand the Word of God as much as they would need to. 
and really I would even go further and say could understand the law of God with a great deal of clarity. Hmm. Um, I refer a lot, I know, to 1 Corinthians 2, which says we have the mind of Christ. We can discern hmm. spiritual things. The Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to make us able to understand God's word. Um, and, and yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit could also be working in the heart of my um, evangelical free or non-denominational neighbor and yeah. could teach me something that's really helpful about that too. Yeah, a really good book on this for anybody who's curious on this particular part of the discussion. It would be Biblical Authority After Babel by Kevin Van Hoosier where he talks about how the church ought to read all of scripture with all of the church and how the divisions of the church in some sense are something to be lamented, yes, but they're also a way of receiving what the scripture has to say in a very Catholic way. Hmm. And so that that's a great book uh, on this whole discussion of denominationalism. Nom- denominationalism, on the one hand, when it's bad, can fence you in from knowing all of scripture. Mm-hmm. On another hand, when it's at its best, it can be the pathway to helping you explore all of scripture. Sure. And this is why I often will tell people that I am a Christian, and then I'm a Catholic, and then I'm a Protestant, and then I'm Reformed. And then I'm Christian reformed. So I sort of think of it in that way. It's sort of like Russian dolls. uh, Because I don't want my Christian reformed identity to come before my Christian identity. Right. Uh, I want to be. I want to be a Christian who loves the Bible. Who listens to the creeds. Who listens to the, the witness of the church. Who. Who is reformed. I'm Protestant. So. I have those distinctives that come into view, but then also as a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, I take what our confessions have to say and what our theologians have to say very highly. Um, but yeah, and th- well, that's we're sort right. of getting far afield here. Well, that's right along with Ephesians 4, right? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope You when you were called. There's mm-hmm. one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is yeah. over all, through all, and in all. And so um, the word of God, when we give it authority, we will find isn't going to separate us into a hundred or a thousand different denominations necessarily, but all people who give authority to the scriptures will find themselves united to one another through, um, through the Spirit, through our common belief in the word of God. That's the great wager of Protestantism. Hmm. Yeah. We have to open the door to pervasive interpretive pluralism, as some some have called it. But through that, God will mature his church. Yeah. And that is some of of my favorite authors make this point often, Van Hoosier being one of them, even Philip Scaff from the, the German Reformed Church in the United States in his book, The Principle of Protestantism, basically makes the point that Protestantism is an interim theology that is that is supposed to work against the unfaithfulness of uh, the accumulations of bad theology in the Roman Catholic Church. And at one point it will meet its terminus uh, as the church reunites. Mm. That's sort of a utopian vision, yeah, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But then, no, that's, that's a really good positive... Um, that's sort of our answer to denominational silos 
is yeah. to say um, it's not as though a pastor or a scholar is, is one who is just interpreting the Bible. In, in fact, then that will end up giving the pastor or scholar actually more authority in someone's life than the Bible itself. Hmm. Um, but uh, the, the way is to give, of course, God the greatest authority, and yeah. the way that he exercises his authority in the church, like we began saying, is through his word. Yeah, and um, can I just add yeah. one quick little thing to that? Yeah. God is exercising his authority through his word. If we deny the clarity of Scripture, which mm. this isn't to say that all of Scripture is perfectly and immediately clear to every person, but if we deny that the Scriptures are clear enough to be able, to be understood in a way that is saving for the person who reads it, we are denying that God speaks clearly. We have to keep mm-hmm. that in mind. Mm-hmm. We are saying that God basically speaks with a speech impediment and is unable to get his point across. So he's trying very hard. He writes, you know, all these books of the Bible for us, but it's just, just too bad. Enough, yeah. Dang God, you messed up. You yeah. didn't quite get your point across. Uh, you're a you're a bad you're a bad communicator, Lord. Mm. Uh, that would be a very wicked and impious thing to to hold on to and to think. I think that assumption is sometimes there underneath exclusively topical preaching. Yeah, um, good point. So we've hit pretty hard on the progressive side of things, and I would say we would also have to hit a lo- hit pretty hard on the pragmatic um, mm-hmm. church growth movement side, which every person in those churches is going to say they hold to a high view of Scripture, and every mm-hmm. pastor is going to say that as well. But in practice, what ends up being communicated is these are the parts of the Bible that are helpful. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, parables of Jesus, Paul's epistles, uh, of course you have the stories of the resurrection and, uh, you know, death and resurrection of Jesus. But mm-hmm. And, that you know, <laughs> Exodus and some of the greatest hits of the Old Testament would be in there yeah. too. But, um, you know, is Lamentations, is, is really all of Ezekiel, all or of Leviticus, Jeremiah, as we saw. <laughs> Leviticus, is that really what people need to know about? Um, creating yeah. that canon within the canon um, mm-hmm. happens a lot in those topically driven um, churches. Uh, I, I've had a little bit of pushback, so I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark right now, and I've preached through uh, Exodus, and we're just finishing Revelation this Sunday um, for our evening services. And occasionally people will say, we need to hear more topical preaching. And the assumption there is, do we really need to know this more obscure story from the Gospel Mm -hmm. of Mark? Do we really need to know this complicated prophecy from Revelation and and our evening service? Um, Mm -hmm. It seems to me, some people might say, that we need to hear a lot about the government right now. We need to hear a lot about politics. We need to know a lot about, yep. um, you know, immigration and uh, creation care and all of those things. Whereas, uh, I really like the words of the old hymn, "How firm a foundation! What more can he say than to you he has said?" Hmm. And I think that that should drive our a- approach to Scripture. That he, what he has said, is what we need. Yeah, um, I think that that's really well put because if we're if we're doing topical based preaching all the time that's exclusively what we do what we're doing is being driven by what we think are the felt needs of our people in the pew and that's constantly changing and what we're not doing if we do that is giving them a an established uh 
way of of understanding scripture uh so maybe on a given sunday the sermon is not going to be what you think you need to hear because Mm. you have some pressing need or some trauma that you've just recently endured and the sermon wasn't spoken clearly to you because it wasn't on that one issue that you wanted to hear uh that that would be wrong and i'm not i'm not an advocate of only doing uh expository preaching yeah verse by verse all the time forever uh but we we don't want to be driven by by the culture or what's what what is the big conversation going on mm-hmm. in the life of the church at any given moment mm-hmm. uh this can be really problematic because it doesn't give people then a the whole meal of scripture it doesn't give them a broad overview and this is also while we're on this point i'll just make the the side point this is why it's good to teach the catechism mm-hmm. or to teach systematic theology or similar things because it gives people a sort of broader big picture view uh, or yeah, maybe you're going to be forced into all kinds of topics that yeah. uh, you wouldn't choose necessarily right and uh, the flip side of that is i once heard a pastor challenge pastors saying if you're just absolutely dogmatically devoted to expository preaching going straight through books of the bible and um, you do a series like maybe i did on exodus with no breaks um, what if someone spends two years in your church and the only book they've ever heard you preach on is Exodus? That's probably not so healthy hmm. for um, for especially in our day and age. Yeah, I can remember D. A. Carson saying somewhere it was almost a decade ago that I heard it. Heard it, but he basically said with people's lack of biblical literacy today, hmm. it may be a better way to to preach bigger overviews of of books of the Bible. Uh, so you're not just doing two verses in a sermon and then two verses the next week and then two verses yeah. after that, yeah. but to maybe do sermons on books of the Bible uh, mm-hmm. and so to, to zoom out to give people people a, a big picture view. Um, or we went, we did something a little bit like that as a church where you and I covered Isaiah, I think in seven weeks, maybe seven or eight weeks. We, yeah. we looked at Isaiah yeah. and, and there's just, about seven or eight sections of Isaiah um, and mm-hmm. so we tried to cover the book. We didn't read every single verse of Isaiah, right? But we, I, I remember the series, and I believe we did yeah. it justice. That um, you know, mm-hmm. there's a collection of woes that's about seven or eight chapters long. Mm-hmm. Woe to all e- Egypt and Assyria and all that. Um, and so we can encapsulate that in a way. And yeah. I think that is maintaining biblical authority. Um, because we're saying we need to know all of the parts of Isaiah, mm-hmm. and it would be great if everyone reads every word of Isaiah. Yeah, it was the um, hope that people would be reading it throughout yeah. the week as we were yeah. doing that series. And so there's an, any number of ways of illustrating that the Bible has authority. Uh, maybe one way, as we start to wrap up, um, that one could ask if your church is encouraging giving the Bible real authority is just how the Bible is even read at church. Um, I know that it is yeah. a trend right now, particularly of larger churches or churches that want to be larger, to um, work the Bible into the sermon um, or even to just have just a, a few verses. Of course, the worst is Joel Osteen in this regard, who <laughs> could preach basically a whole sermon with tangential references to God's Word. But uh, you see it among some gospel preaching pastors as well where 
there's a temptation to avoid a straight reading of the Bible. And um, that's something that we value at Almond Valley. And um, one, yeah, one way part that, of our service is the reading of Scripture. Right. One way we show that we value that is I try often, with a few exceptions here and there, to read the text very quickly in my sermon um, to show that this has primacy. This is what I'm basing all of my thoughts on. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've seen this. I've listened to a lot of sermons where there will be a 15, 18-minute intro and then sort of a, a short scripture reading in the middle, and then yeah. kind of launching off of that. We try to avoid that here to show the Bible has authority, and uh-huh. so we're going to read straight through it. And then, of course, I'll refer you know seven or eight times to the text throughout my sermon, but uh-huh. um, we're going to read it. We're just going to sit and look at it and read straight through our text today. Yeah, this um, is why I think the liturgical part of it, too, is mm-hmm. quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Saying even something very small, hear now the word of the living God. That's that's usually my introduction to reading the, the passage sure. for the sermon. Hear now the word of the living God taken from such and such a passage. And then at the end, as we've said earlier, saying this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. By doing that, you're bracketing scripture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as the important thing that needs to be heard. And then you're going off into your sermon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's sort of, in my mind, I sort of think of it as like a, a study Bible. If you've, all, if you've had a study Bible, you've seen that there's two halves on every page. <laughs> there's the scripture half on top, and then there's the commentary notes on the bottom. And that's how I want people to see it. I want them mm-hmm. to, in the sermon, to, to, to get that this is scripture, this is God's voice, and what comes after this is the sermon. Yeah. Uh, and, and the so, more it goes back to the text itself, the more you can be assured that this is a good sermon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're seeing it up front. And I also want to clarify something Mark said. Uh, when he says he reads it quickly, he doesn't mean that he's trying to quickly speed read through no. the scripture. Yeah. He means he's trying to get to it quickly. Yeah. Once he comes up for the sermon portion of our of our service, he gets promptly. up and promptly, <laughs> he doesn't want to have a whole lot of uh, sermonizing that happens before yeah. he reads the scripture. He wants to give it primacy by getting to it quickly. And occasionally, if there's a strange story, maybe Jesus tells a parable with an image in it um, yeah. that really, uh, in order for people to, to get the weight and the punch of the text, mm-hmm. they need some cultural information. Sure. Um, that would be just about the only reason that I would give a long intro to the scripture text. But then again, I'm not really preaching almost as much as just preparing people to hear God's word as it's best prefatory can. statements. That's yeah. how I think of it. You're trying, yeah, trying to get them prepared to hear. Yeah. So when, when we get to that word, yeah. then it will hit us like God intends that it would. So, mm-hmm. um, wow, there's a lot here and hopefully people yeah. can just draw from it that we, as not just Christians, but especially as Reformed Christians, give an absolute, absolutely high authoritative place to the Bible in our lives, in our understanding mm-hmm. of God. So much so um, that um, I want to confirm something we've just been talking about. We believe that the Bible tells us what we need to know, even more than mm-hmm. what we think we need to know about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes we think we need to know about all the political maneuvering, all the things that are happening in our world. We convince ourselves that's the knowledge we need, when in reality, we believe this, everything we need for life and godliness is in the Bible. 
So that's where we go for it. And uh, we go with what God's word says um, for us. So, yeah. Amen. Um, so thank you so much for listening, everyone. And uh, we would love uh, feedback. We've been getting feedback here and there. And so keep that coming. Yeah, thank you guys. And uh, hopefully your rest of your week is blessed as you give the Bible functional, real authority in your life as well. Amen. Grace and peace, you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye.